0: Once you move from a kind of sufficiency to luxury, people will fall in love with their material happiness. And When you fall in love with your material happiness, you'll want it to be perpetuated and you will be willing to, to give up your liberties in order to do that. So luxury is the great disease that corrodes a republic.
1: The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly.
2: Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Vanessa Rouse. Thank you for joining us for a conversation with President Thomas Jefferson. And yes, you heard me right. This is focused on our founding ideals and how present day America is fulfilling or failing to fulfill America's founding ideals as seen by President Thomas Jefferson. We're thrilled to present this program in partnership with Florida Humanities as part of a specially curated podcast series called Created Equal and Breathing Free. This throwback program was a live audience taping of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, a weekly radio program that airs on 80 stations across America that's dedicated to the search for truth in the spirit of Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson is portrayed by presidential scholar Clay Jenkinson, the host of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, who has portrayed Jefferson in 49 states and has performed before Supreme Court justices, presidents, state legislatures, and countless public, corporate, and student audiences. He's also appeared on the Today Show, Politically Incorrect, The Colbert Report, and CNN. And let me say, you're in for a real treat with this program. Mr. Clay Jenkinson is in character as President Thomas Jefferson for about two-thirds of the program, and then he joins us as himself for the remainder of the discussion. Now listen, you guys, here at the Village Square, we believe in constructive dialogue, so let's just address the elephant in the room right up front. The legacy of Thomas Jefferson has become a hot topic since we first held this program, and we certainly understand the sensitivity around this discussion. In fact, we had Clay Jenkinson back for a program called Dead Presidents and Living Statues, where we talk openly about Thomas Jefferson's hypocrisy and also the debate over statues in our country. We'll be airing that program for you here on Village Squarecast, Two episodes from now, coming out on August 5th. And also, we're planning to bring Clay back for a little village square behind the scenes moment so we can hear his thoughts about where we are currently. So, look at this as sort of a part one, and please stick with us as we dive deeper into these important topics. All right, back to this program. Steve Vancor, president of Vancor Jones Communications and Clearview Research, is the facilitator of this program. And he's got to be one of the biggest fans of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, as he claims to have listened to at least 500 episodes. So it's really because of Steve that this event happened. Okay, one last thing I'll tell you about this program before we get started is this is a throwback program, as I mentioned. And once again, it's remarkable how relevant the conversation is today. The first five-minute segment is called, What Would Jefferson Do?, and the question posed is about our dysfunctional Congress. So it was interesting to think about this question as it relates to today and the troubling trends that we see continuing. I just can't tell you how much love I have for this program, so let's get to it. Here's Steve Vancouver to kick things off.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, it is truly a privilege and an honor and a true joy to introduce to you and welcome to Tallahassee, Florida, the third president of the United States of America, Mr. Thomas Jefferson. <clears throat> Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. I am your guest, Steve Van Cor from Tallahassee, Florida, and on behalf of the Village Square, Good day to you, Mr. President.
0: Good day to you, citizens.
1: Mr. President, our House of Representatives is in a bit of a quandary and a little bit of a crisis. Mr. President, if you were in this situation,
0: what would you do? Well, first of all, let me say that I believe very strongly that the earth belongs to the living and not the dead. So this is really your problem and not (laughs) mine. (laughs) Um, I lived between 1743 and 1826, and I had many very significant problems to try to solve, and no part of me thought that I would be projected forward into a a world that I didn't live to see, and then be expected to try to sort it out too. But let me say that I feel very strongly that if we're going to be a republic, not a monarchy or an aristocracy, but a republic, that this only works if there is a very high level of harmony. In our system, the majority must prevail. But as I said in my first inaugural address, the majority to be rightful must be reasonable and must remember that the minority possess their equal rights, which equal laws must respect. In other words, once the majority has decided, it needs to reach out to the minority and attempt to compromise and conciliate the minority. And once the decision has been decided, the minority needs to to honor the decision as the will of the people and to avoid partisanship and ad hominem attacks and selfish factionalism. I was fortunate. I lived in one of the most harmonious presidencies of American history. I had a solid Republican majority in the Senate and an even larger Republican majority in the House of Representatives. I think I had the most harmonious cabinet in the entire history of the United States, and I don't remember a single dispute. So I'm mystified that you have descended into barbarism and partisanship.
1: (laughs) We we certainly have, even in the state of Florida where one party controls both chambers. They, too, have had sessions end without the other party agreeing. Do you think it's the role of the president to intervene and go over to the House and sit down with them? Perhaps a famous Jefferson dinner would solve some of these problems?
0: I I did have dinners in Washington, D.C., at what you call the White House. It was called the president's executive mansion then. I had 10 or 12 people 3 or 4 times a week in mid-afternoon and I took care of the seating charts very carefully so that we could create a maximum of harmony and I made sure that we never talked about politics at table. We might have talked about the Lewis and Clark expedition or about South America or about parrots or orchids and everyone commented on the fine wines that I served. But I did not allow politics at these tables because I believe that if we sit down together and break bread together, and learn to be civil towards each other, that when the political moments come in in the halls of Congress, we are more likely to seek harmony and conciliation.
1: And we're not seeing much of that these days, are we, Mr. President?
0: Well, of course, you must live in your own time. I (laughs) had the good fortune of living in mine. I, I would simply say that there has been some volatility in the American system from the beginning. My election in 1800 on which I narrowly defeated my old friend John Adams to become the third president of the United States, has been called by some historians the most vituperative and hotly contested election in in the history of the country. So I know something about fury and partisanship. But once the election was over, in my first inaugural address, I famously said every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle, we have called by separate names men of the same principle. We are all Federalists, and we are all Republicans. And I would hope that the point would come in your time when you can say we are all Democrats, and we are all Republicans.
1: Well, thank you very much for that enlightening observation. and We appreciate it, and we wish they would take your words to heart.
0: I don't think I've added much to, you, to your debate, but I've told you what I can say from and gave my gave very time. little
1: guidance to our president on how to solve this problem. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much. And that concludes the first section call, which, what would Jefferson do? Part two, this is now the part of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. And if you've never listened to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, I strongly agree that you do so. It's available on iTunes for those of you who are inclined, and hopefully we'll have it at our local public radio stations soon enough. This first segment is 15 minutes. It's the opening segment. I'm going to read a brief prologue, and then we'll get into the questions, most of which were submitted by you. Good day, citizens, and a hearty welcome to the listening audience of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. On behalf of 88.9 WFSU from Tallahassee, Florida, our host, The Village Square, and our primary sponsors, Stearns Weaver Miller Law Firm, the Hinkle and Foran Law Firm, Johnson and Blanton, and Millennium Settlement Consulting, we welcome all of you to a live audience taping of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Village Square is dedicated to elevating civic and political debate while recalling the history and principles at the foundation of our democracy. Tonight's program is is titled, Founding Ideals, A Conversation with President Thomas Jefferson. Good day to you, Mr. President.
0: Good day to you, citizens. Let me say that in the course of my lifetime, I never stepped foot in the state of Florida. I never really got into North Carolina. I traveled no more than 70 miles west of my birthplace in Virginia. I never was in the Shenandoah Valley. I would have liked to have accompanied my protege, Meriwether Lewis, up the Missouri in 1804, or Zebulon Pike up the Mississippi in 1805, but the fact is, I spent my entire life huddled on the eastern seaboard. Now, it is true that my grandson, Francis Epps, moved here to Tallahassee in Florida in 1829. I must tell you that I wanted him to stay in Virginia. I gave him Bedford, my, my second home, Poplar Forest, near today's Lynchburg in Virginia. It's an experimental octagonal house. I was quite proud of it. And it had the, the most productive fields of all of the plantations that I managed in the course of my lifetime. And in fact, the inheritance that I left to young Francis Epps was the only one that I managed to secure. I died so hopelessly in debt in 1826, about $9 million in your currency, uh, that I, I lost Monticello. My daughter Martha could not spend the rest of her life at Monticello. In fact, she eventually moved to Boston to be with her children who were there. If I had lived longer, I can assure you, that Francis would not have moved here. I am a Virginian, and although I desperately wanted the Floridas in 1803 when I purchased the Louisiana Territory, I constantly advised my two sons-in-law to stay in Virginia and to make their destiny there. But the good news for you is that Epps came here three years after my death, and he went on to become a pioneer, not only the mayor of Tallahassee twice, but, of course, the founder of what became Florida State University. So he was carrying on the Jefferson commitment to public education.
1: And Mr. Jefferson, that's a perfect lead into to our question. The more I've studied your life, the more it amazes me how direct and immediate, certainly liberty and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and, and the Declaration of Independence flows through our veins. But as I, as I travel through our own community, I see the statue of your, of your grandson. I see a, a law school modeled after your beloved Monticello. The county to the east of us is named after you, and it's, it's capital seat with a rotunda courthouse, modeled after your, your, your home as well. Of course, the county to the east of that, we, we won't mention the name of that county. Uh, we, we just built a grand new park in downtown Tallahassee, and in the center of that park is a meridian marker based on a statue you yourself wrote. Did you think in your time that you would have this kind of long-range impact so far from your home on the direct and immediate days of citizens so far removed from yourself?
0: No, I I could not have anticipated that. I, I never took myself that seriously. I wanted to be remembered for the Declaration of Independence, which I wrote in 1776, for the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty, which I wrote in 1778, but which was passed into law in 1786, and then the University of Virginia at Charlottesville, which I created in my retirement years, I knew that I would be remembered by history as the author of the Declaration of Independence, but I didn't think that I would become as important a figure in your history as I have become. And I, and I want to slightly warn you against that sort of thing. If I am important, it's because that I embodied certain principles of the Enlightenment. In other words, if I had never been born, the world would probably be about the same as it is. Somebody else would have written the Declaration of Independence. I think you would have separated church and state. Another university would eventually have been built in Virginia. It might not have been architecturally distinguished, (laughs) but it certainly would have been built. So I never allowed myself to be caught up in the cult of being Thomas Jefferson. I assumed that I had done what I could to represent natural rights and uh, to articulate the American dream, but I never felt that I deserved a special place in American history.
1: Mr. Jefferson, I know you were a man, you were very modest in your time and you did not believe that you were going to have this, but you set, up, you set us on a course of what one might call Jefferson ideals. And it's an important part of tonight's presentation and let's contrast that for a second, the Jeffersonian ideals, with what you would call the Hamiltonian ideals. And then reflect for, for a moment, if you could, on how are we doing? What
0: I wanted was a well-educated farmer's republic. I said in my only book, Notes on Virginia, those who labor in the earth are the chosen people of God, if ever he had a chosen people. I wanted us to live on the land with our hands in the soil, I wanted us to be ruggedly independent, antagonistic to government, eternally vigilant against government encroachment on our liberties. I believed in the smallest national government that could minimally hold our social fabric together. I'm an isolationist. I regard a national debt as a national disgrace. And I believe in the Tenth Amendment. I hope you do too, that those powers not delegated to the national government belong instead to the states and to the people. So, if that was my vision, I don't think you're doing very well.
1: Okay, and when you say Jeffersonian ideals versus Hamiltonian ideals, what do you mean by that?
0: Well, Mr. Hamilton was born in the Caribbean. He's not really an American. Uh, uh, He he came here when he was a young man, he was a young genius. He was sent here uh, by patrons from the Caribbean He came to New York. He studied at King's College, now Columbia. He was a brilliant man, but I don't think that he was really in the spirit of the United States. He was a monarchist. He was an aristocrat. He loved war. He despised state sovereignty. I should tell you that In June of 1787, at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, I was not there, I was in Europe, but on June 18th, Mr. Hamilton gave a speech in which he outlined his vision of this country. It was a five-hour speech. I won't uh, give you all of its highlights, but Mr. Madison, my closest friend, was there, and he was taking down virtually verbatim notes, and I'm aware of what Hamilton said. This is what Hamilton wanted for America. A president to serve for life, the president to have an unqualified veto over every act of Congress, senators to serve for life, governors of individual states to be appointed by the federal authority, and the national government to have veto power over every act of every state legislature. Hamilton said of you, the people, he said, the people, they are a rabble, a beast, childlike, entirely incapable of self-government. And he said, let us reduce the states to mere administrative units. And when we began to interpret the Constitution of the United States, he said, whatever we think is necessary and useful for this country is implied in the Constitution's text. So let me just ask all of you this. Which of your recent presidents would you wish to have served for life?
1: Thank you for that. Very enlightening comment. (laughs) You you had mentioned being ever vigilant of your government. This question comes from the Bureau Chief of the largest newspaper in the state, Mary Ellen Klaus, and I would like to read it. Please provide us with some context for your statement. Were it left for me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without government, I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter.
0: I believe that each person in this room is capable of self-government. That's the ideal in the United States, that each of us would would quite literally govern ourselves. We would be respectful of others' property. We would be tolerant of others' political differences. We would mind our own business. uh, We would pay our bills. uh, We would follow the the civic laws in the communities in which we live. Every person, if well-educated and tied to the soil, will become a self-governing sovereign. And then our public relations would be entirely voluntary. So if that's the case, what we really need is to be well-educated and well-informed. And if we are well-informed, we probably can govern ourselves. And so that's the context in which I said, given the choice between government without newspapers, in other words, most of the systems of history, or newspapers without government, I would not hesitate to prefer the newspapers. Now, I wasn't literally meaning that. Those
1: newspapers were highly partisan.
0: Yes, they were highly partisan, but if the people are well-informed, and and any American citizen can be well-informed, particularly in your time, that's the most vital tool you have in self-government. So I often said things like that that I didn't truly mean, (laughs) but they made a point, and the point is that information is the great desideratum of a free people. And so you are lucky, living in the 21st century, you have access to more information than any people who have ever lived on the face of the earth. And you can follow legislation, not only from month to month, but hour by hour and minute by minute, and you can intrude yourself into the process as citizens. It would be possible in your time to have true democracy. I'm not necessarily recommending it. But you electronically, in your era, could canvass the will of the entire population of the United States more or less instantly in my time, On election day, people took their horse or carriage into the village green of the nearest county. Uh, There was usually ale and punch and and roistering and wrestling and boxing and a whole range of irrational activities. And then the election involved a a dais like this where the, the sheriff or the county official would have a box here and a box here and people would come up one by one and place their ballot in the box of the person for whom they wished to vote. It was very cumbersome. Uh, Women didn't vote. African Americans didn't vote. American Indians were not even regarded as citizens of the United States. And in fact, in every state to the time of my death in 1826, even white males had to have a certain property base in order to vote or qualify for public office. So by those standards, you live in a sort of democratic paradise.
1: I appreciate very much you shouting out to the village square and the concept that we're trying to achieve here in Tallahassee about people coming together in the public square. Mr. Jefferson, Glenn Burhans from the law firm of Stearns, Weaver, and Miller asks the following. Mr. Jefferson, as we've expanded the right to vote to all citizens in America throughout the course of our history, we are now in a process of restricting their votes or their rights to vote in meaningful elections. And we do this by allowing taxpayers to pay for primary elections where parties choose their candidates. And most often they run in districts that are dramatically favoring one party over the other. Mr. Burhans believes this is resulting in those who only appeal to extremes of both parties. And this is the cause of a major breakdown, not just in civility, but in the basic functioning of our legislative branches. Was this the vision for our nation?
0: Well, first let me say you can tell by the length of that question that it came from a (laughs) lawyer. (laughs) now, I'm, I wasn't a man of great humor. Uh, you could probably put all of my jokes into a passport book, uh, but I do have one joke, and it's about lawyers. I received a letter uh, when I was at Monticello from a young Virginia congressman, and he said, Mr. Jefferson, how is it that there are 150 lawyers in the United States Congress and yet nothing seems to get done? Uh, To which I replied, young man, whenever you gather 150 lawyers into one room at one time, nothing good can come of it. After all, these are men who are paid to talk by the hour. (laughs) I expected a a larger laugh. (laughs) Uh, That's my only joke, so I've I've said it. Uh, You know, the word gerrymander, meaning a district that is artificially skewed for a political purpose, actually comes from my time from... Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts. Elbridge Gerry was a sort of idealist and a bit of a crackpot, later served as the vice president of the United States, in fact died in office as vice president. But he uh, was engaged in a district in Massachusetts that was so oddly shaped it had the look of a kind of salamander. And because of that act of political manipulation, Gerry gave his name to gerrymander or gerrymander. And I understand that it continues to thrive as a system of political corruption in your time. In my era, it would be very difficult to determine how to create a district. I was partly responsible uh, for our census system every 10th year. This is something that the Romans did in, in the Roman Republic. But we installed a 10-year a decimal system in the United States so that we could create the conditions of apportionment and representation and to, to determine what a, a congressional district was But we did not have any statistical science to do this very carefully. In your time, you have the capacity to create truly representative congressional districts if you only choose to do so. And the thing I would suggest is to take it out of the hands of the political system and put it into the hands of mathematicians, people who are absolutely nonpartisan, mere statisticians, And then you will find, I think, that you can solve this problem. You know, there was a similar issue in my time. When the Constitution was being written, there was a fundamental dispute between the large states and the small. Virginia was the largest state. It was also the most populated state. And Mr. Madison's idea at the Constitutional Convention was that there would be proportional representation. But the little states, like Delaware and Rhode Island, refused to accept that because they felt they would be swallowed up by the Congress of the United States. And so this produced an impasse that nearly broke the constitutional process apart, and it was eventually solved by the compromise of having an identical number of senators for every state, irrespective of size or population, but proportional representation in the House of Representatives. So that solved that problem. Well, meanwhile, in 1784, I was on a committee called uh, the Bill for the Government of the Western Territories. I was the United States congressman from my own commonwealth in Virginia, And I realized that after the first 13 states, the entire West was essentially a tabula rasa. It was a blank slate. And so we could engineer a new style of bringing in new states. So I had this idea, and I hope that you will think it's a good one. I suggested that we make every state west of the Appalachians perfectly square and identical in size. This would solve the problem of yes, it would. the differential between large states and small so that every future state would be a perfect rectangle, I like geometry, and it would be identical in size. And I actually laid out 14 states in the Ohio Valley and gave them names like Sylvania and Pelissippia and Polypotamia and Michigania and so on. This was not accepted by Congress. Well they should have accepted it because when you create a square state, you solve two problems. Number one, you solve the problem of size, and number two, you end disputes. Because if under the old meets and bounds system, if you say the river is the boundary between Maryland and Virginia, if the river jumps during a flood, you've got a problem. That's right. But with perfectly square states, if there's a dispute, you just call in a geometrician and he can determine instantly what is just. So I am for using mathematics and rational principles for every possible human problem and districting is one of them. You now have computing devices that could produce a perfect solution to this problem and make almost every district in the United States a competitive one. Are you willing to do it is the question.
1: It would be nice to let all voters have the opportunity to cast meaningful ballots in their elections. I find some irony in the fact that the man we call the father of the Constitution had as his vice president <laughs> the man we named gerrymandering after, Elbridge Gary. Well, Gary had, had recovered from that period in his <laughs> life. Uh, uh, Mr.
0: Madison would never have being hired him. You're very
1: protective of your good friend.
0: Well, you know, Abigail Adams said he was a little cracked in the head. <laughs>
1: Mr. Jefferson, you're talking about modern technology. You talked about advancements we're witnessing here, but yet you always believe, and I heard you talk the other day about the ideal of the personal conversation, bringing us back to those founding ideals and one of the goals of the village square. We come out of the Revolutionary War, and we had a debt crisis, and you managed to meet with one of your greatest enemies, And sat over dinner and solved that debt crisis. Will you tell us a little bit about that famous dinner? Well,
0: At the time, Mr. Hamilton was not yet my enemy. (laughs) I went to France for five years between 1784 and 1789. My wife, Martha, died on (laughs) September 6, 1782 at the age of 33. We had been married for 10 years, 10 years of uncheckered happiness. She had been pregnant nine times during that period. She had given birth to six children, and four of them died before their seventh birthday. Then she died of complications of birthing her last child on the sixth day of September, 1782. And I had, in the wake of that, what you would call a nervous breakdown. And it wasn't clear to me that I would recover from this. Mr. Madison, my closest friend, knowing the depths of my grief, urged Congress to appoint me as a minister to the courts of Europe, uh, to be stationed in Paris, because Madison felt that if he could get me out of the country, away from the environs of my uh, depression, that I might recover. And I, and I did, in fact, and I spent five years in France uh, with Benjamin Franklin and John Adams and others. I came back to this country in November of 1789, and by then the Constitution had been written and ratified, and the new President of the United States, George Washington, was in place. And I came back from France and and landed in Norfolk. And when I disembarked, there was a letter waiting for me at port from the President of the United States, my friend George Washington, saying that he had nominated me to be the Secretary of State and that the Senate had confirmed this. Now, he had not consulted me about this. I wanted to go back to France. I had left most of my my personal effects there, and I wanted to see the French Revolution through. But I couldn't say no, of course, to General Washington, so I became the first Secretary of State. And after a few weeks at Monticello, I made my way to the capital, which was then New York, and took up my post. Well, no sooner did I get there than I was coming out of my own lodgings one day, and I saw Alexander Hamilton walking up and down in a disheveled way and he was usually a very natty dresser and he looked tired and depressed and disheveled and so I took a stroll with him and I didn't know him very well at the time I asked him what what was the problem and he said that the system that the whole whole government of the United States was in danger of collapse because we had a national debt that needed to be paid off and the Congress had refused to adopt his fiscal system and so I then said well what would what would change? What would what would allow adoption? And he said, "We need more votes from Virginia and other Southern states." So I said, "I will gather a dinner party at my salon, and I'll bring in Mister Madison, and we'll see if something can be done." Because I too believe in fiscal responsibility. In Europe, I noticed that our fiscal credit was very low in Dutch and other circles. So I hosted this party, and my my dinner parties were always famous for perfect wines. Uh, great French cuisine and a very high level of civility, and so I had a dinner. I guess party. that
1: explains why you did not invite Mister Burr.
0: <laughs> well, at this time, I didn't know Burr very well. This is long before I was the president of the United States. So I had this dinner party, and and Madison was there, and Hamilton was there, and, and several others. And during, I, I was simply the host. I stayed out of it. But during the dinner, Mister Madison and, and Alexander Hamilton, who had worked together in creating the Constitution forged a compromise in which Madison would see to it that the Southern states supported the funding bill that Hamilton needed, if Hamilton would make sure that Northern states agreed to place the permanent national capital on the Potomac. So the capital would be located in the Upper South, close to Mount Vernon, on the Potomac, in exchange for Southern votes for this fiscal assumption of the the State and national debt. I suppose I was the midwife to that agreement. I regretted it for most of the rest of my life. Uh, Hamilton duped me. I didn't realize the Machiavellian that he was. And he was able to install a fiscal regimen that I think essentially ruined the American dream. I'm no friend to banks. I'm no friend to national debts. And Hamilton, I don't want to go into details because I hate to spoil the evening, (laughs) but Hamilton decided that the, the accumulated debts of the states and the nation needed to be paid off. Of course, we all agreed. But Hamilton decided that they should be paid off at par. These war certificates and bonds had been purchased by widows and farmers and soldiers during the course of our revolution. And they had depreciated, so they were worth 50 cents on the dollar now, or 30 cents on the dollar in some cases, 10 cents on the dollar. Hamilton decided to pay them off at par, but before he announced this to the American people, he announced it to his friends. And his friends went all over the country buying up this depreciated paper at 10 cents on the dollar, farmers who thought they would never even get that, and no sooner had this occurred than Hamilton announced to the nation that he was paying the debt at par, the speculators made money, and the original holders, the people who created the success of our revolution, were left holding the bag. You would be happy that was to the moment you- that I realized that Colonel Alexander Hamilton was a corruptionist and a very dangerous man.
1: You'd be happy to know that in today's time, if someone were to do that, they would land in jail. We have a government agency that would oversee. Mm, So you say. (laughs) I I very much doubt that that's true. You know, there
0: are always Hamiltonians. There are always Hamiltonians, and they are very clever. They don't sleep at night. Uh, While the rest of us are drinking fine wine or growing rutabagas, they are scheming to undermine the liberties of the American people. You think I'm joking, but I am not. The speculative class are not people who are true patriots. They prefer profit to patriotism, and they prefer profit to human liberty, and they will enslave you every time. You must watch
1: them like a hawk and impeach them whenever possible. Thank you, Mr. President. Mr. President, on the subject of liberty, the next question is about religious liberty. There's currently much controversy around the topic of religious liberty. In light of a recent Supreme Court decision legalizing marriage, something that was inconceivable in your day, legalizing be- marriage between same-sex partners, oh my! That has been celebrated. This has been celebrated by many citizens in our nation. Religiously conservative Americans are increasingly concerned they may be forced to act against their conscience on this matter. As the author of the Virginia statute for Li- religious liberty, what wisdom do you have for us on this matter? I blush.
0: I'm surprised, sir, that you would bring up a question of this sort in front of ladies. You surely don't expect me to discuss homosexuality in a public gathering.
1: But the freedom to marry, sir.
0: Well, I'm a believer in natural law. I hope you are, too. And according to natural law, the propagation of the species depends upon a man and a woman, a male and a female... In almost all societies, and in many other species, there are examples of homosexuality. But this is a a rarity in species, and it's not something I think that we should encourage Uh, with federal law. uh, It seems to me that if such things are done, they should be done on a strictly private basis. Uh, But I would be very unhappy to think that the government of the United States would sanction homosexuality in any form.
1: So you would support the government outlawing it, sir?
0: Well, you know, marriage is really a private matter that occurs in a chapel. But to the extent that government issues marriage licenses, I would expect government to support productivity in reproduction and not the
1: reverse. Okay, thank you for that. Well, Speaking of the Bill of Rights, we, we seem to be... It is interesting that when you were in Paris, you received... Kind of three cool letters, as I would call it. One from Mr. Franklin, Mr. Washington, and your good friend James Madison. And when you received their letters with the new Constitution in it, you weren't so happy with it, were you?
0: I'm still shocked that you asked me about gay marriage. (laughs) Seems like only a ruffian would do such a thing. It's a big issue
1: during our time, Mr. President. uh,
0: You know, there was homosexuality in my time, but it was uh, the less said about it, I think the better I believe in a wall of separation between public policy and private behavior. I believe in discretion. Each one of us has a private life, and that private life is entitled to a very large shield of discretion, it seems to me. And when we carry our animalism into the public square for any purpose, I think we degrade the principles of the republic. So I'm having a a little... Bit of trouble recovering from your rude question, but <laughs> but let me let me address uh, the Constitution. So I was not at the Constitutional Convention; I was in France, and they had the, the first thing they did in Philadelphia when they met these fifty-five men was to agree to secrecy that they would not divulge outside of Independence <clears throat> Hall the deliberations within. I objected to that because I, I believe in transparency in our system, but I understand why they did it so that they could debate freely without having to answer to their perhaps temporary comments when they left the building every day. So I didn't really know what they had done until months later. September 17th is constitution day. It's the day that the 39 members of the constitutional convention signed the document. And then three of them, Franklin, uh, the greatest American, uh, George Washington, the president of the convention. And my closest friend, James Madison, all hand copied out the new constitution and sent me copies to France And I was waiting with great anticipation for this moment. I will tell you that when I received copies of the Constitution, I was sorely disappointed with it. And I'll tell you why, for really three reasons. Number one, it was much too centralized and powerful a Constitution. I'm a friend of the good old venerable fabric of the Articles of Confederation. Under the Articles of Confederation, each state was a sovereign. Virginia was a nation, and Maryland was a nation, and Delaware was a nation. And those sovereign nations had come together for certain very limited purposes in a confederacy. That's my ideal for the United States. I believe that Florida is a better sovereign for your public affairs than Washington, D.C. or any other place. So this troubled me. And I said, this is like bringing in a, a fox to police the hen house. Secondly... The new constitution did not limit terms of our national officers. There was perpetual reelectability for the president and the vice president and senators and so on. And it seems to me when you have perpetual reelectability, you, you will create the problem of incumbency. That the people will return again and again people that they know and like, but who are not particularly good representatives. And so we need to have an artificial way of retiring people so that fresh blood will come into our political system. I'm for Maybe a presidency of one term only of seven years with a vote of confidence or no confidence in the middle, but for term limits on all national offices, including, by the way, Supreme Court justices. I won't digress long on this, but the idea that Supreme Court justices will serve for life under good behavior is a really bad idea. Even in my own lifetime, I said, few die and none resign. And of course, in my time, if somebody were appointed to the court in his 30s, we could at least be glad that he would be dead by 50. <laughs> but in your time, if you appoint someone in his Wait, 30s, have so anybody court,
1: in mind? he could <laughs> live for decades. I mean,
0: the idea of the judiciary is that it'd be independent to a certain degree of the electorate. But if it becomes too independent of the electorate, then it becomes a problem. And so I think you must reset this. And I suggested that we have a vote of confidence or no confidence for Supreme Court justices every 5 or 10 or 15 years so that at least the senile could be retired. But then finally, my greatest objection to the new Constitution, and a very severe one, is that it did not contain a Bill of Rights. And I was only angry two or three times in the whole course of my life, but this was one of them. And I wrote a letter to Madison, my closest friend, in which I really blew off steam and I said, what every people on earth has a right to expect against its government is a bill of rights. This can never be left to inference. It's not implied in this or any other constitution. And any constitution that does not contain a charter of the rights of man is by natural law, null and void.
1: Those are some stinging words, Mr. President.
0: I was very angry. <laughs> yes. No, anger in my time was much more genteel than it is in yours. Yes, and, you know, we lived essentially in a Jane Austen novel. Uh, and so everyone spoke with circumlocution and euphemism at all times, and I, I, I pride myself on this. And I want to say something about that because of your commitment to the village square. Societies are naturally fractional; people fall out for good reasons and for bad reasons. You know, the, the founding fathers did not even create a system with political parties in mind. They thought we would be nonpartisan. Well, it soon proved that that faction is is probably. A term in in human nature it probably is inevitable. And so soon the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists began and then it was the Whigs and the Republicans and so on. So if that's true, we must find every possible way to compromise and conciliate if we wish to be a republic. And I wrote a letter to my grandson, Thomas Jefferson Randolph, when he was leaving Virginia to go to Boston for some studies. And I said, be careful because you will be drawn into disputes because you happen to be my grandson. I said, turn away from them as you would from an angry bull. I said, Franklin was right when he said that no man is ever convinced an argument. It often leads to duels, but people are seldom convinced. And so I said, ideally, we are born with grace and civility and good humor. But even if we aren't, we can adopt what I call artificial good humor. When somebody is rude to you, When somebody is intolerant, when somebody is a bully, our response should be to adopt a kind of artificial civility. And if in every case you respond to something inappropriate with something smooth and conciliatory, not only will it disarm your antagonist, possibly even shame him a bit, but by doing this it becomes second nature in you. And second nature good humor is as good as original good humor. So I think if you will all, I, I ask each one in this room in the next month, each time there is a provocation, each time someone is rude to you, each time someone is insensitive, I ask you to respond with artificial good humor. Will you do that? And if you do, I think you will find that you now live in paradise.
1: When you pushed for those Bill of Rights, I want to get back to the Bill of Rights because when we look at our, docu- our charter documents, we look at the Declaration of Independence, which you wrote most of it, The Constitution, which you had a a hand in instructing Mr. Madison on on leading... I sent him
0: books from Paris.
1: You did. And, of course, the Bill of Rights, which you did not scribe yourself, but you were the great instigator behind the Bill of Rights. I would have
0: gone farther. I would have had a a provision for conscientious objectors in war, not for our Quaker brethren. I would have prohibited a um, perpetual reelection, and I would have prohibited a national debt.
1: These rights are so important and such, such a critical part of the lifeblood of America. Most Americans can cite at least one or two of the ones that they feel very personal about. But sometimes those rights fight each other. They, 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 they kind of argue back and forth the right to assemble, the right to equality, the right to keep and bear uh, a gun. Did you anticipate any of that and see that as an acceptable downside? Well, I had nothing to
0: do with the creation of the Bill of Rights. I was probably its midwife because I insisted upon it, but I was m- not speaking merely for myself. I think the great majority of the American people were upset with the new Constitution and demanded a Bill of Rights as a, as a compensation for what had been done in Philadelphia. I think it, problem with the Bill of Rights, as Mr. Madison put it, is that it's merely a parchment guarantee. But because of that, in the Ninth Amendment, Madison specifically said this is not meant to be an exhaustive list. We may think of other rights from time to time that are equally important, so please don't assume that if it's not enumerated here that it it doesn't exist at all. I think it's important. I think the Bill of Rights is a more important document than the Constitution. It's arguable that the Bill of Rights is a more important document than the Declaration of Independence, you know, the First Amendment, separating church and state, giving you the right to, to publish what you please, to speak your mind. Uh, the Second Amendment, guaranteeing you the right to arms, so that you can protect your home and family and bring down the government from time to time. Uh, the Fifth Amendment, guaranteeing you the, the ability not to ever have to incriminate yourself in a court of law. And these are laws that were not made up by James Madison. These are laws written in the human heart. You know, natural rights come from natural law. Natural law is accessible to any rational human being. For example, if you and I are on an island, we're the only two there, and there's only one loaf of bread, natural law will teach us that we divide it in two. Natural law would never say that you get 85% of it and I 15. That can happen in a society.
1: Hamiltonian law would say I take the bread and sell you pieces.
0: Hamilton (laughs) takes 100% and sells me 1% uh, unless there's a higher bidder. So we have these natural principles, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Share resources in some equitable way. Everyone should be treated identically in the machine of the law. Everyone has an absolute right to conscience. You know, I, If I believe in three gods or 300, it's none of your business. There's nothing to do with our public square. And so these are things that are off limits to government. Madison was wrong when he said they are mere parchment guarantees. Imagine just for a moment what the history of the United States would have been if you did not have the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights is the most essential document in the history of human liberty, and we created it. Madison didn't invent it, but he was the one who articulated it, and it, I believe, has been more important to the liberties of the American people than any other thing that ever occurred. Thank you, sir.
1: Speaking of civility, Mr. President. I find it sweet irony that this person's name is Robert Anderson, the same name of the captain who fled, fled Charleston to the little island fort there. Uh, he asks about uh, the separation of our, our states from our union. Would you have supported the individual states seceding from our union?
0: Any state has a sacred right at any time to secede for the, from the union for any purpose. I, I believe that the right of self-determination must trump the Constitution. Now, I was not alive in 1860, I saw the Civil War coming. Uh, It would be impossible not to see it coming. Once the Missouri Compromise occurred in eighteen nineteen and 20, it was clear to me that that was the death knell of the Union. Uh, But I thank my creator that I died before that cataclysm came. But I will tell you that my grandson uh, was a cabinet official in the Confederacy, and I believe that I would have sided with the sovereignty of Virginia against northern um, aggression.
1: So the nation you helped create, you would have been happy to see, not happy to see, but you would have allowed these states to say, we no longer want to be a part of this happy experiment.
0: Well, I would have been saddened by this, of course. But I, you know, as I was, as I made the Louisiana Purchase in 183, and when I made it, doubling the size of our republic with a single stroke of my pen, I said, it's not clear that this will all be one republic. We might have sister republics west of the Mississippi. There might be sister republics west of Rocky Mountains. As long as they're English-speaking and agree to get along in a confederacy and have Republican forms of government, it doesn't seem to me that it's essential that we create an empire. As long as people are free, that's the whole goal of our system. And so I don't think that there's anything perpetual about the Union.
1: Speaking of rights, I have another question. Is the right to bear arms intended to allow the right of citizens who are not militia to keep and store multiple firearms in their homes?
0: It depends on who you ask. Mr. Madison would say that the purpose of the Second Amendment was was to create a, a militia as opposed to a permanent military establishment. You have a permanent army and a permanent navy and a permanent air force and a permanent coast guard and so on. We had studied our history and we were very frightened of that sort of thing. When you create a standing army and a standing navy, they're ruinously expensive. They will create a national debt and a very strong executive. When you create this machine, an army and a navy, they will want to find wars to fight, and so that it, it's an invitation to adventurism. We saw this in the death of the Roman Republic and the coming of the Roman Empire, And so we wanted to avoid what you now take for granted, a permanent military establishment. And so to do that, we wanted a militia, a people's army, and that meant that every man in this room on a Saturday, would go to the public square with his musket, and we would drill. And people, of course, needed to have their own weapons, because otherwise, if the government is supplying the weapons for the militia, it's no longer a militia. The government can withhold those weapons at will. And so we wanted every able-bodied man to have a musket or a rifle so that he could participate in a people's army. Now, you know the the text of the Second Amendment says a well-regulated militia being desirable. People shall have the right to keep and bear arms. In your time, you have no effective militia, so you might want to revisit that principle. But, that's Madison speaking. I believe in the right to revolution.
1: So, so one of the other questions leads right into that. Do you think we are still a revolutionary country?
0: No. no the, the great concern of all of the founding fathers, Franklin and Washington and Madison and I, was luxury. Once all the great republics have been... Uh, inhabited by farmers who are largely self-sufficient. Once you move from a kind of sufficiency to luxury, people will fall in love with their material happiness. And When you fall in love with your material happiness, you'll want it to be perpetuated and you will be willing to, to give up your liberties in order to do that. So, luxury is the great disease that corrodes a republic. And I mean no disrespect, but You are certainly the most materially prosperous people who ever walked the face of the earth. And because of that, I think that your revolutionary edge has been somewhat blunted. Uh, You must be prepared to sacrifice your life, your fortune, and your sacred honor if you wish to be free. Now, I suppose you're thinking, easy for you to say, Mr. Jefferson, who had Monticello and all of that wealth, but uh, I was speaking about the, the ideals of a Republican form of government. And I worried very greatly that the time would come when we would become complacent about liberty because we would prefer comfort instead. And I think probably that's where you are as a people.
1: Thank you very much, Mr. President. For this final segment, we're going to interview Mr. Clay Jenkinson out of character, no longer as Thomas Jefferson. Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with President Thomas Jefferson. This week, we are conducting a live audience taping hosted by the Village Square in Tallahassee, Florida. I am your host, Steve Van Cor, and seated next to me now is the man who portrays Thomas Jefferson, humanities scholar and author, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. Clay, thank you for coming to Tallahassee.
0: Well, first, thank you. I, I, my voice doesn't change. I can't take off my wig. Uh, <laughs> I want to say how pleased I am to be here. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I want to, just for our radio audience, I want to say there are a couple of hundred people here. We're in a very rustic sort of lodge. We've had a splendid meal. Uh, I see evidence of some modest drinking. Uh, we have a very elegant crowd that's sent questions up on cards. Steve, it's great to, to be here with you. You know, I have the sense that it maybe our conversation has been a little stiff. If so, I apologize for that. My goal uh, when I perform as Jefferson, is to let Jefferson be Jefferson. And I often find things coming out of my mouth that I don't agree with. But that's the, that's the whole point. Uh, Jefferson was a man who lived between 1743 and 1826. He was a slaveholder. He was, by our standards, a male chauvinist. He was uh, an aristocrat. So he had a certain detachment, and an emotional detachment. He liked to live up on the top of his mountain in virginia and and i always say jefferson was happiest when he was alone in a room with a, the english language in his library and and fine paper he was not a politician in our way he didn't go into the public and shake hands and kiss babies and press flesh and beat his own chest and
1: and, and when running for president, he retreated back to Monticello. When he,
0: when, he, when he stood for the presidency, of course, he would never run for the presidency. But when he stood for the presidency in 1800, he was reluctant. He regarded the presidency essentially as jury duty. And he, he, when Madison came to push him to become a candidate, Madison was always more political than Jefferson. Jefferson was always a little aloof. He was a, he was a, a philosopher. When when Madison pushed him, Jefferson said, I will agree to stand for this office on one condition, that I need make no public appearances. And so Madison, bewildered, agreed to it, and Jefferson spent the entire campaign of 1800 at Monticello, uh, never left, never asked for a vote, never made a public appearance, never gave a speech, just stayed at Monticello and let the people decide, and they decided narrowly, that they preferred him to John Adams, and so Jefferson became the third president of the United States. Then he gave his first inaugural address on the 4th of March, 1801. He was so poor a public speaker and so kind of almost Asperger's in his style that he mumbled his way through his inaugural address. It's regarded as one of the two or three greatest in our history. He mumbled, but no one heard him. (laughs) Uh, Everyone's what? what And so there were printed copies out on the street so people could find out what... Jefferson had in mind, he never, during the presidency gave speeches, he never traveled the country. Most Americans didn't know what he looked like. Virtually all Americans, there were six million of us then, had no idea how he sounded. There were no images of him in the public press. You know, this was just this, this figure that everyone had sort of heard about. But he didn't publish anything. He was never interviewed. There were no news conferences.
1: You tell a it's hard for story. us to
0: really get our brains around. You tell
1: it. a great story about a, a aristocratic woman who was, at, I believe, was at the White House who didn't know but did not like Mr. Jefferson. And after meeting him for some time, and, and out of character, so to speak, she kind of liked him.
0: Well, Jefferson, this was Margaret Bayard Smith. So Jefferson, he was her husband was the editor of the National Intelligencer, which was the the newspaper of the of the administration. And she had heard about Jefferson as this wild demagogue and this revolutionary and this vicious Jacobin and so on, a vulgarian. And one day Jefferson was in her parlor and she walks in and he's just sitting alone. And she doesn't, I don't know why she didn't ask him who he was, but they sat and talked for a while. And then her husband came in and said, Oh, Mr. Jefferson. And she almost fainted. She said, This is this crazy demagogue. He's the most gracious, civil, polite, humble, self-effacing person that I've ever met in the whole course of my life. And then she kind of got a crush on him and became kind of a Jefferson groupie. And they were very close friends. And And then they, she and her husband came to visit him at Monticello later. and so on. But, he, but he also was in a carriage ride once. He used to travel alone, no secret service, of course. He traveled from Monticello to Washington, D.C., which is a distance of about 130 miles. He had to actually four to eight creeks, you know, go through on his horse or carriage, eight creeks in and out, and he would stay in these houses or inns. And one time he was in the carriage and this other man came in and the man had no idea who, he was, who Jefferson was. And they were talking as the carriage rumbled along and the man said that Jefferson was the worst person who ever lived. And and, and Jeff- So then Jefferson started to draw him out. Well, what do you think of Jefferson's tax policy? And what do you think of the Louisiana Purchase? And what do you think of the separation of church and state? The man just attacked Thomas Jefferson through the entire travel. And they get to this inn and the innkeeper comes out and says, Oh, President Jefferson. And the man nearly fainted dead away. He was just so embarrassed And so he apologized profusely. And then he went away and said, no, no one who knows Jefferson can dislike him.
1: Well, Clay, you mentioned the word loud demagogues. right? And that gets to several of the people here. I've asked us about what you think Mr. Jefferson would think about the current crop of presidential candidates. No, I'm not um, naming any names in particular. Well, and in particular, who would be most Jeffersonian? Yeah,
0: I don't know the answer to that question. You know, everyone's thinking a little bit about Donald Trump, of course. You know, Donald Trump is sort of the Patrick Henry of our time. You know, a big blowhard who is full of ego and says crazy things that he probably doesn't mean. You know, a demagogue. demagogue means somebody who <laughs> plays on the darker lowest instincts of the people, that our fears, our lusts, our our aggressions, and our peevishness. Demagoguery is a really bad thing in a republic. And so Jefferson always feared demagogues. Aaron Burr was sort of one. Patrick Henry was certainly one. And so I I don't think Jefferson... I, I think Jefferson would not be surprised that Donald Trump exists. I think he'd be surprised that he has support. I think Jefferson would think... After one or two speeches, the people would simply turn away in disgust. If Donald Trump is, has as much traction in our culture as he seems to have, it's a sign of very deep discontentment. And Jefferson likes discontentment to find a voice. So maybe Donald Trump is a, is a cathartic force that's drawing off some of our anger and frustration and unhappiness. It's hard to believe that a man who speaks that way could be the representative of the greatest country
1: This on man Earth. who would have said the seeds of liberty need to be sowed with the blood of tyrants. You know, Jefferson's not
0: afraid of some, some stirring up of the culture, but I don't think he likes rabble-rousing or name-calling much. I think Jefferson would like Rand Paul. They're both libertarians and isolationists to a certain degree. Jefferson today, you know, who knows whether he'd be a Democrat or Republican. It depends on how you do the math, but he certainly wouldn't be a Democrat of the Nancy Pelosi sort. He doesn't like government. Jefferson wouldn't have liked the New Deal, he wouldn't have liked the Great Society, he wouldn't like welfare. Jefferson believed that each one of each each American should be like you. Imagine if every American were like the people in this room self reliant, well educated, thoughtful, civil. Law-abiding. I mean, just imagine if—if if 330 million people were like you. I'm sure there are some schnooks in this room, but, <laughs> but, but on the whole, you you represent the ideal, right? Because you're here. You, you you're not. I won't say what I was about to say, but, uh, but you represent the ideal. So w- why can't we make that work for 330 million people? We should be able to. But the fact is, we've created a culture with a very large welfare state and a great deal of dependency and and a lot of people, including the middle class, are at the public trough. Jefferson didn't want that at all. And so you have to think, well, what candidate of our time comes closest to representing that sort of really serious and enlightened, well-educated self-reliance? I don't think that it's Mrs. Clinton. On the other hand, I don't think it's Ted Cruz either. I mean, Rand Paul comes about closest, but it's kind of a silly exercise in a way, Steve, because Jefferson lived then. We are on the other side of the Holocaust. We're on the other side of World Wars I and II. We're on the other side of the Civil War. We're on the other side of the Freudian Divide. We're on the other side of Darwinism. We were. We're now an urban nation. We now have atomic weapons and cruise missiles. We have cyber porn. Most of the things that trouble us could not have been imagined by the people of Jefferson's time, and so the solutions they had, living in a three-mile-per-hour world, are solutions that don't probably work very well for us. So take, for example, two, two examples. One is drunkenness. Jefferson's time, we were, mu- were much more likely to be drunk than we are today, Uh, There's a book about this called The Alcoholic Republic. But in Jefferson's time, someone goes to a tavern and gets incredibly drunk, and on his way home he falls off his horse. That doesn't do a lot of damage. Today, that same person is in a car and causes a 200-car crack-up on a freeway. So the technologies change these things. The, The damage would have been limited in his time because of the technological infrastructure. Similarly with guns. Jefferson says a free man is a man with a gun and so on. Jefferson's time. If if one of you suddenly jumped up and were angry at Steve or me and wanted to shoot us, you'd have a musket. After you shot the first ball, it would take you thirty or forty seconds to reload. You'd be pulling the ramrod out and getting the powder out and putting it in the pan, and we would overwhelm that person within seconds. But today, a nine millimeter handgun could kill thirty or forty people in this room before we could even understand what was happening, and so the technologies have something to do with this. The Fourth Amendment, protecting us from illegal searches and seizures. That means one thing in Jefferson's time. What does it mean in the age of the NSA? You know, if if you're a parent, as I am, you know, it used to be that the sexual predator was somebody who couldn't get into your house. Today, that person's in the computer in your son's or daughter's bedroom. The world has changed. It's a very much more complex world. Yeah, and so if you, very... if you try to lock it all into the Founding Fathers, as some of the Tea Party folks do and Ted Cruz or some of these people will sometimes attempt to do, you're, you're really comparing apples and oranges. We live in a, a breathtakingly complex world that we try to govern according to principles that were created
1: by people who lived in a three-mile-per-hour world. And, and the irony of that is the Founding Father most often quoted One of his more famous quotes was, the earth belongs to the living, not the dead. And Mr. Jefferson believed that he would tear up the Constitution every 20 years or so.
0: Jefferson did write a letter to Madison from France in 1789 uh, saying the earth belongs to the living, the earth belongs in usufruct to to the living, and and therefore we should tear up the Constitution once every generation. And then he worked that out as 19 years. Madison was appalled by this idea, and most people are. But Jefferson believed that every generation should find its own social compact and if we were let's just say that you know that in men in black that device that you know and then your brain goes if we could do that for the country and we had to invent a new constitution out of whole cloth out of a blank slate i doubt that we would create the same constitution we would step back and say what what are the social restraints that we need in the 21st century should people have guns should people under what circumstances should we distribute property should there be a welfare system what should our foreign policy be what kind of public education do we want and i think if we if we were inventing something on a blank slate we would be doing something quite different probably from the thing we have inherited and jefferson wanted to empower everyone in this room to invent their own happiness to invent their own system you know they fought the revolution over consent of the governed but no one in this room has ever consented to our government you, you're born into it, and, and the theory under, in politics is that by not objecting, you've given, quote, tacit consent. Well, Jefferson doesn't like tacit consent. He wants actual consent. And so I don't, I don't suppose that well, let me, people... Well,
1: let me get to a question about okay. actual consent, because right. there's so many times, and this is a question you get asked often, how can a man, I'm trying to summarize, several of you asked a similar, how can a man who wrote the words, all men are, be, are created equal, at the same time, look out his front window and see people who are enslaved and owned by another person?
0: And there's no answer to that. I've spent 30 years wrestling with this issue. There are two issues that I've spent most of my adult life wrestling with. One is Jefferson and slavery. How can you say all men are created equal and own them and buy and sell them and have sexual relations with one? There's no answer to this. And the other question that I wrestle with is, why did Meriwether Lewis did Meriwether Lewis commit suicide? And if so, why did Meriwether Lewis commit suicide? I've spent my life on this. I've written books on this. Pretty nerdy way to live, if you think about it. You know, really, those are your questions. You know, about, um, wow, you know that explains a lot. You know, well,
1: but it's we, true. We would expect nothing less from a road scholar.
0: But it's true. You know, so here is Jefferson, who is well. Look at it this way: you're many of you are Southerners, so you understand. In a way that no one from Montana can, the unbelievable complexity of the race history of this country. And you know how much how far you have come in the last 50 years. I mean, breathtakingly far. I've been working on a symposium that's going to be in Bismarck, North Dakota, in a few weeks on the 60s and you know, the 60s, Selma and Bloody Sunday and The Freedom Riders, and you remember this. This was a hard, hard, hard time in the South. And it's amazing how much progress has been made. But it's still not over. It's a still very complex and unfinished journey. And so I've been trying all my life to figure out how someone who said all men are created equal could so comfortably own human beings and really there's no answer you have to say that jefferson was a man of his times you know 8 of the first 12 presidents were slaveholders that always strikes me as a very important statistic you know today if you were a slaveholder you couldn't be taken seriously but in jefferson's time you could it was not a debilitating fact of a white man's life i think Jefferson was a racist, I hate to say it, but I think that he actually was a, had race theories of of superiority and inferiority. But even even if you take all that away and just try to read this in the best possible light, the facts are the facts, that there were other Virginians who freed their slaves, Jefferson did not. Jefferson freed eight slaves, three during his lifetime and five at the time of his death. Jefferson early tried to do something about emancipation and proposed a series of things. There was a, a, a passage in the Declaration of Independence. There was a Virginia bill that would have allowed gradual emancipation. His ordinance for the West forbade slavery to cross the Appalachian Mountains. He worked on it for a time.
1: It was like he was trying early on. He was
0: in his trying, life, but, but then he realized he wasn't going to win that battle. And so he he began to pull back, And he and he was made to know that if he continued to be an abolitionist, that he would be Retired from public life, but but here's what I always think, Steve. If Jefferson had been born in New Hampshire and had said all the things that he said, he would have a much better position in the world than he has. The tragedy for Jefferson is that he was born in Virginia. His first memory of all the memories of his life is at the age of two of being carried on a pillow on top of a horse from one plantation to another by a trusted black slave. That's his first memory. So, think of how complex that is. Your parents are not going to put a two-year-old with just anyone. That's a trust relationship. And yet, it involves enslavement. So, Jefferson, his whole world is inextricably interwoven with race. And he knew it. Monticello was built by slaves. The national capital was built by slaves. I'm sure Tallahassee was built by slaves. Uh, This is a fact of our history, and we can't duck it, but we, we shouldn't wallow unnecessarily in it. And we certainly shouldn't crucify Jefferson over this because if we do, we lose so much that's important. We lose his architecture. We lose his philosophy of freedom. We lose his ideas of government. We lose library science, his paleontology, his archaeology, his classicism. We need Jefferson. He's America's da Vinci. But we shouldn't give him a pass on this vital I question. Victorians
1: would be kinder to him today had he not responded to Mr. Coles in the way he did.
0: Edward Coles wrote to Jefferson uh, in 1814 or so, and he was a young, brilliant Virginian, and he said, you know, something has to be done here. And he said, you above all people have that kind of credibility. If you became a champion of emancipation now and helped me, he wa- Coles wanted to take his slaves and free them, but take them to Ohio and give them land, and then supervise their transition from enslavement to self-reliance. And he said, if you will sign on to this and become sort of the patron of this movement, it, you can probably make a difference in the world. And Jefferson said, uh, I'm not sure it's a great idea, and I'm too old. But then he went on to create the University of Virginia.
1: Wasn't so he wasn't
0: too old for time. that. you know. So, it, look, I don't want to, my view, my mentor in the humanities said this. Judgment is easy. Understanding is hard. And that's what I think. Judgment is easy. We're much too prone to judge. We weren't there. And when I think of this, I think, what will they say of us? It doesn't look good, folks. It doesn't look good that we are burning carbon to beat the band and the clothes that you are wearing, I won't say mine, Steve. Uh, were made somewhere, but they weren't made in Ohio, I can promise you that. Um, If you knew where they were made, and how they were made, and under what labor conditions, you probably wouldn't sleep very well tonight. I think we have to look in the mirror. I'm with Jesus, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. We all live with whopping fundamental contradictions, I think, and some more than others, but they're very visceral with Jefferson. And
1: earlier on, you use the U word that most of us use every day, usufruct, usufruct, which usually gets bleeped out when you say it on a talk show. Uh, that oh, are we doing a good job in turning over the earth and usufruct to the next generation? Especially when you contemplate the conflict between our national debt and global warming.
0: Well, Jefferson had this concept of usufruct that you have a it's a feudal concept under law that you have the right to the fruits of the estate, but you don't have a right to impair. The fruitfulness of the, the estate. And it's a wonderful concept in sustainability and stewardship. And he worked hard at usufruct in the course of his life. He adopted a seven year crop rotation system and he planted amelioratives to bring back his lands. And he and his son in law, Thomas Mann Randolph, developed contour plowing. And so Jefferson was a very big man in the sustainability movement. That doesn't mean that, that he left Monticello intact because I don't think that he did. I'll duck your global climate change question and just say, leaving a 14 or $20 trillion national debt to our children doesn't show a very stewardly approach to finance. And even if you leave out global warming, I met a woman once who was a chemist, and, and she, her, her PhD was in carbon, particularly petroleum. And I remember we were having a picnic somewhere in Utah, and I said, what will the epitaph of America be? And she said, the epitaph will be that they burned oil. Now, oil is a miracle carbon that can do pharmaceuticals and plastics and you name it, and she'll say, and they burned it. They burned it, not only did they burn it, but they burned it indifferent to the future. Now, at some point the oil will be gone and we will have used it. And so from that point of view, from a usufructian point of view, we're not doing very well, but we're certainly enjoying it. Yes, we are. And so, you know, I think Jefferson is a, that's why I think I do Jefferson, is that he seldom has the answer, but he always has the question. And the question is, are we free? Are we equal? Does the poor person have, or the the black person or the Hispanic person have the same legal access as the white male? Um, Is there gender balance in the United States? Are we treating the land well? uh, Do we have have mechanisms of social change that are built into our system? Are we educating our children so they can be responsible adults? I think all those Jeffersonian questions are really the ones we need to be asking all of the time, and that's what you do in the village square, and I congratulate you, and you do it in in a civil way, but I don't think Jefferson is necessarily the answers. He's more the questions.
1: With that, we are out of time. We are deeply appreciative to you, Clay, for coming out and spending this time with us and allowing us to take you out of your home in Bismarck and be a part of Tallahassee. Uh, You know,
0: it's been such a pleasure to be here. I'm so sorry to be leaving for for several reasons. First of all, I'm from North Dakota. And, you know, it's autumn in North Dakota. And I think if you've been up there, you know what that means. And, and secondly, you know, you have so much here. You have everything here. And, and in North Dakota, we have nothing. Uh, we, yeah, you know, the reason I'm a Lewis and Clark scholar is that's all we've got. You know, we have Lewis and Clark and we have Lawrence Welk. And, and you, you have, I had, I had this, today I had Thai soup. The word Thai has never, has never been spoken in the state of North Dakota. You know, we are the land of Velveeta cheese. Today I was at Trader Joe's, I bought like three hundred pounds of cheese to smuggle back and sell within North Dakota. Uh, you you have you have everything here and and then you have when you drove me in the other day, we drove by some gigantic brick facility and on a university campus. It
1: was our cathedral.
0: (laughs) And you said it was a cathedral. And I you know, poor Jefferson, think of what Jefferson would think about, eighty five thousand people in stands screaming about people throwing a ball. <laughs> uh, and, and I understand you're playing... You're doing
1: this the whole time. <laughs> yeah,
0: Chopping and... I mean, this sounds like the Roman Empire, you know? Gladiatorial sports, and now you're playing ruffians from Louisville. Uh, I would love to stay for that. You know, in North Dakota, all of our stadia are outdoors. And so after, like, October 1st, no one would go to a football game because... <laughs> You know, there's frostbite. Um, it may be paradise here, I don't know, but I, I really have fallen in love with Tallahassee, and, and you have all these Jeffersonian echoes. You have it's amazing. the law school and the, the, the rotunda. I didn't get to say it, however, your capital is really, I mean, a
1: profound
0: violation of Jeffersonian principles. <laughs> what possessed you? You had that extraordinary dome, this neoclassical building, and then you just threw up a tower that, I mean, we have one in North Dakota. It looks like an insurance tower. What were you thinking? <laughs> Jefferson created the neoclassical public design with the Capitol at Richmond, and almost every state has followed it, and there are only, I think, four exceptions. Lincoln, Nebraska, Baton Rouge... Bismarck, and it turns out Tallahassee. And it seems to me you should raise that thing and go back to your dome. Don't you agree? You know, yes. just... I have had such a good time here and, and, I, and I so appreciate the people that I've had a chance to meet and your spirit. And I really want to say, just before we close, about the Village Square. I've been so impressed with this idea. You know, the the reason that I'm here, I know, is because of Jefferson and civility. And if you've watched Fox and MSNBC recently, you know what incivility looks like. And we are in a very, very, very serious problem here, where our national government is in a state of paralysis. And while we can't solve problems A through Z immigration energy policy education policy our foreign affairs china is leaping forward and argentina is leaping forward and brazil is moving forward and india is moving forward because great nations do things and this paralysis is going to destroy us if we're not careful and jefferson's the answer the answer is mutual forbearance and civility and engagement You don't see much of it anymore in the United States. It's really a bad time. And I think what you're doing here, I just congratulate you to bring people together for the purposes of true conversation. Just ask yourself this as you leave. How many true conversations do you get in a year now in your life? Uh, We live in a mediated world where we're sitting in front of flickering screens, trading insults on Facebook. You know, if you took the cat tropes out of Facebook, there'd be nothing left. (laughs) Just think of the number of cat memes. That alone should be outlawed, I think. That that, that should allow us to withdraw the First Amendment. Uh, We have got to to return to a kind of cheerful civility in this country, and if we don't, we're toast. And I, I think what you're doing with the Village Square is absolutely the right answer, and I've been saying to, uh, to Liz and, and to others, to you, Steve, that we should you should franchise this, and I'll try to carry it, carry it to the barons of North Dakota. But it needs to go to all fifty states. So, congratulations,
1: Clay. Clay, thank you, thank you, Clay. Thank you very much. And I'd like to close with a quote from a famous philosopher. Many of you may have heard of him. His name is Laurie Dozier. And he once said, I've been smiling so hard tonight, my face hurts. Thank you very much.
2: (laughs) Hi again, it's Vanessa here, your podcast host. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with President Thomas Jefferson. We're so thankful to Clay Jenkinson, creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, for sharing these insights with us and for his exceptional performance. And we're also thankful to Steve Vancour for making this happen in Tallahassee. And by the way, that famous philosopher mentioned at the end, Laurie Dozier, that's my dad. Talk about smiling. That was a lovely surprise as I was editing this program. Remember to join us again on August 5th as we bring both Clay and Steve back to continue the conversation And God Squad regular Derek McGee will be joining the discussion too, as we explore dead presidents and living statues in our continued podcast series with Florida Humanities. Before I let you go, that question that Clay asked at the end, how many true conversations do you get in a year? That made me pause. I'm happy to report that Village Square has helped me connect to more true conversations in my life. They've helped me tremendously, and they've sparked so many other true conversations in my life with friends and family as I talk about what I've heard, like with my husband and kids about this Jefferson program. I loved it so much that I listened to it with the family, and it led to lots of great discussion. I can't tell you how many times we paused to say, we heard about that on Hamilton. So in all honesty, I have to admit that the Hamilton parts stung for a minute, And then I realized my reaction was more related to my love for the absolutely outstanding work of art that is the play Hamilton. But when it comes to the actual man, I realized from this program, as I did also with the play, just how little I know about Hamilton himself and about the dynamics between the founding fathers and frankly, that time in our history. And once again, this has me thinking about perspective. I know I talk about that a lot, but for real, this is another great example of how the same general story or time period or event is experienced differently by different people, and also how individuals can hold such different views from each other and each is valuable, and how exposure to different viewpoints helps us all grow and helps us arrive at solutions that benefit the greater good. And on that note, I found Clay's comments at the end about the state of our government very interesting, and this was five years ago. Just like one of my other favorite programs, The Righteous Mind with Dr. Jonathan Haidt, which you can listen to in episode 10, here's another expert highlighting our trends long before many of us realized how bad it's gotten. It's our responsibility to take charge of the state of our union— So hopefully this provided a little inspiration to help us move forward together. All right, before we sign off, a huge thank you to Florida Humanities for partnering with us to present this podcast series, Created Equal and Breathing Free. Subscribe to Village Squarecast wherever you listen to podcasts, so you'll see the fantastic lineup of programs we have planned for you throughout the rest of this calendar year. To stay up to date with all that's happening with the Village Square, subscribe to our newsletter at villagesquare.us. We appreciate you listening to A Conversation with Thomas Jefferson. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon. And thank you so much for listening to Village Squarecast.